<laughs> anyway, let me pray before we get started. Oh, Father, it's so good to be here. The smell of the flowers, the walking across the lawn with the crocuses, I think that's what they're called coming up. Just the daffodils, all the just the, the flowers, the trees budding, speaking to us of new life, and we thank you for that. We thank you that every spring we are drawn back to this and understand that great things happened 2,000 years ago on that cross. And on this day, when you rose from the, the dead, and I pray that you would do us uh, the favor of making that drastically clear to us this morning in a way that maybe we have not heard before or a way that maybe we need to hear. Pray that your spirit would just convict us of how important those moments were and what they do, not only for us, but for the world around us. And that they would sharpen us, that these words would sharpen us, that these songs would sharpen us, that these prayers would sharpen us to be more useful in your hands for the sake of your glory. We thank you for all that, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I'm really glad you're all here. Um, you know, Jesus said to the, cru- the, the, the criminal crucified next to him uh, in Luke 23:43. it says, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's kind of an amazing thing to hear when you're hanging on the cross next to Jesus, right? Um, And it tells us that it's never too late. Up up until the very last minute, it's never too late that God is the God of second chances, so to speak, right? And I don't know if you know, but we are involved with Prison Fellowship, which is a ministry to prisoners and their families. and, um, And in 2017, they declared April to be second chance month. And, uh, you know, President Trump and uh, the U.S. Senate and 19 state and local governments and more than 230 partner organizations declared the same thing in 2018. So every year it's supposed to be second chance month from now on. And 6-8 has joined that this year. So you might see some, you know, posts and everything going out, you know, from our social media feeds and things like that. I just remembered I haven't done it yet and I have to do it. But uh, I don't know if you're aware that approximately one in three adults in America have a criminal record. So look around you. Somebody's got a record in here, right? (laughs) It's not me. I'm perfect. No, I'm just kidding. But um, there are more than 44,000 documented restrictions on people that have been convicted for a crime or or whatever. And so these restrictions, coupled with sort of like uh, social stigma, you know, when somebody comes out of jail or prison, uh, they bring about what we call the second prison. When, and you know the story, somebody can't get a job, they can't get a lease for an apartment or whatever, um, and the things like that. And, and, you know, depending on the crime, uh, certain restrictions are necessary and good for the protection of society from past offenders. You know, you don't want a pedophile teaching kids, things like that. We, we get that, you know, and there, some of these things are right and good. But overall, uh, our focus at 6 8, I think, is to see. Um, instead of second prisons, to see really a second chance in Christ, that people get that, that, that new life in Christ, right? that, new, that new beginning. Uh, no matter what society does to us, that is the most important thing, I would think. And, you know, and so you're going to see these posts out throughout the month. We, we just this week sent out uh, Easter cards to all the uh, incarcerated and their family members who we served with Angel Tree. If you remember Donna, Donna Christie, you give Donna a little bit of... Uh, woohoo! She, uh, she. If it wasn't for Donna, this this ministry wouldn't be happening. She is a she is a blessing in all that way. But 
Um, last week, if you weren't with us, uh, we celebrated Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as king, as sort of his inauguration ceremony on the back of a donkey. Although it was not the king that they had expected, you remember? They were all excited. He thought he was, he was the Messiah. He was going to conquer Rome. But that's not really where, where he was going with all this. And uh, we looked uniquely, and maybe it was the first time you've ever heard the Sermon on Hell, but we, we looked at hell being the end result of rejecting Christ in life. And, you know, sort of a sobering sermon, I think, but it was, I think it's necessary. And we reminded ourselves that we said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, we know that verse. And then we looked again at Romans 6.23, which follows that three, three uh, verses down, that says the wages of sin are death. That, that our sinful lives, our, our sinful choices lead to death in life, right? Um, that in the end... Without Christ, humankind will experience eternal separation from God as he, ch- as he sort of closes the door finally on his kingdom forever. And that will happen at some point in the future. And we believe that. God is simply giving people what they desire. It's not that he glories in sending people that way. He, they, he, he makes this offer and he gives them that chance, but he is, he is giving them what they desire, right? As a matter of fact, that's why his offer of salvation extends till now. I think that God is being very patient with us, right? Since uh, the good news is actually the second half of Romans 6.23. So it says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But always negates everything before it in the sentence. But men, good good advice. Don't say, I love you, sweetheart, but... <laughs> you know, you say, whatever you say after that just negated the I love you. It's always good, good to replace your butts with an and. I, I, I love you, sweetheart, and I love when you cook this. You know, that kind of thing. So. <sighs> That's professional husband I am, right? Um, <laughs> but, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, wow, death and everything else is erased, but, you know, we get the but, and, and, and we have eternal life in Christ. Now, I'm going to assume that because you're in church this Sunday, and may, or you're watching it online, whatever the case may be, that you might be familiar with all this stuff. You might be familiar with the fact that over 2,000 years ago, there was a man, an actual man, named Jesus Christ of Nazareth, or named Jesus of Nazareth, uh, who was crucified three days before this day, and, um, and he died, and he was buried, and he lay in a tomb dead for three days. I'm going to assume that you're aware that on that third day, which is today, which we're, what we're celebrating, he rose from the dead and he appeared to hundreds, if not thousands, of people. I'm going to assume that you're aware that he ate with, that he met with, that he touched and that he taught many people over the following 40 days before he finally ascended to heaven, including his disciples and many others that were very familiar with him before he was crucified, and they all testified of this. I'm going to assume that you're aware of the integrity and the trustworthiness of the eyewitness eyewitness accounts surrounding these events, that the gospel accounts and the the New Testament letters were written by eyewitness eyewitness people, people that were there, that that saw him and everything else, and they were written within a few decades of of his... his, his dying on the cross, and how people across great distances and time even agreed on the details of these events. 
And that no other ancient writings that we have for anything else in the world has so much integrity as do the scriptures of the Holy Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. That even non-Christian historians of that time, with no skin in the game, right? They weren't out to prove anything, such as Josephus, I hope they pronounce these names right, but Josephus and Thallus and Tacitus and Mara Bar Sarapion and Fliegen, if, if I say it correctly, they all corroborate some of these details together. They don't re- rewrite the whole Bible and say the whole thing, but, but they, do, uh, they do speak on these events, these certain events. I assume that you know that none of the gospel eyewitnesses, the people that wrote the Bible, right, could have been out for financial gain or power or self-preservation since they gained nothing. They gave up everything and they died for this story. Which speaks worlds of its integrity and its trustworthiness and their convictions on who Jesus really was. Because you don't die for something you don't really believe in. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, those guys wouldn't have died for him. You've got to think about these things, right? But you all know all that, right? You're sitting in church, you know all that. Maybe you don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm reminding you, but whatever. You know. And if you want to learn more about that, there are things that you can read it, I can, I can direct you to those things. But God's a God of second chances. That's what we're saying today. But you only get one second chance, don't you? Right? You get a second chance, but you only get one second chance. And it's easy to say second chance. It's easy to say I'm saved in Christ. It's easy to ask somebody, or you, you know, do you know Jesus? Yeah, I know Jesus. I'm saved. I, I'm in the door, so to speak, right? But the question I want to linger on today is, by what and from what are we saved? By what and from what are we saved, right? What's the gospel really mean? What's the nuts and bolts of it? You know, today we're celebrating that empty tomb, Christ's resurrection from the dead. It's an amazing thing. The second half of Romans we're celebrating, 623, right? Uh, Eternal life in Christ. We're celebrating that today. But I want you to remember what Jesus did just a week before this as he crested the hill coming into Jerusalem. He came over a hill on that trail going down into Jerusalem and he looked out over the city. And if you remember what he did... It was just, you know, the beginning of Passover. He's, he's knowingly going to his own death, by the way. He's not naive to that fact. And Luke 19 tells us what, what happened. He says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, talking to the whole city, had only known this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So remember what's going on, right? That this is in the middle of all the joy, all the the waving of the palm branches, the laying down of cloaks before the donkeys riding on, all the accolades, all the shouting, all the hoopla. They're all excited and ecstatic that the Messiah is finally here, our Savior is finally here, right? And Jesus wept in the middle of all that, knowing that many that were cheering for him that day would turn and shout, crucify him, just in a few days' time. Big difference. It's easy to cheer when you think you're getting what you want. Right? So easy. So easy to cheer when you, when you think you're getting what you want. We tend to see and we hear 
only what we want, don't we? We're kind of unique that way. We, we filter things through ourselves. We, we don't really listen well. I was talking to somebody this week, and, and a woman, and she said, uh, they say that men only hear one, one of every 12 words you say to them. And I said, what? I only heard men and words. Would you say? <laughs> She's like, you jerk. And I'm like, yeah. Um, but we don't listen well, do we? Right? We sift through the Word of God. You ever seen somebody sift a screen? Right? We sift through the Word of God, and then we take only what we want, and we kind of leave the rest. Jesus knew that they would do exactly that just a few days' time, as revealed by his weeping over the city. Right? He knew as soon as he was arrested, they would turn, because how could their Messiah warrior Get arrested, let alone go to the cross, die this despicable death on a tree. Why would, they, why would that happen? He can't be the Messiah. That didn't sift through their screen, right? Do I want us to be celebratory today? Of course I do. The sun's shining, there's flowers outside, flowers in here. You know, of course I do. I want us to be celebratory, but I want us to be celebratory in considering the weightiness of what this cost Jesus and what it means, not only to every one of us in this room, but to this whole world. Consider how Jesus is referred to in the Scriptures. Mark 10, verse 45 says, He's our ransom. Something that we pay to get back something, right? 1 Corinthians 15 says that he defeated the powers of sin and death, bringing us victory over them. Philippians chapter 3 says we're extolled to become like him in his death, that he's our moral example to walk by. Galatians 4 states that he brought us back from the law, that he bought us back, sorry, from the law, and, and, and that he enabled us to become sons and daughters, that we've been adopted into his family. You remember John the Baptist saw him from far away you know, in John chapter 1, and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, referring to the Lamb that is sacrificed at the temple for the sin of Israel, right? This perfect, spotless Lamb that they would bring in, and they would cut its throat, and they would sprinkle its blood everywhere to pay for the sin of Israel. Amen to all that. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad Jesus is referred to in those ways. But the question still is, saved by what and from what? Saved by what and from what? And I know you already know some of these answers. You know them cognitively, right? But let's, let's linger here for a while. Let's look on these things as if we're looking at all the facets of a diamond. Like we had a big giant diamond and the gospel is a diamond. We looked at every facet of it, how the light comes through it in all kinds of different ways, like a well-cut gemstone. Listen to this passage from Zephaniah chapter 1, describing the the day of the Lord, the day of judgment at the end, right? A little lengthy, but listen. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out that that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, 
a, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. Now, let me remind you that we consider the whole of the Bible to be God's word to us, so we don't discount passages like this, even though they're heavy. I'll continue. It says, I will, I'll say it with a smile, so it feels better, right? I will bring distress upon men, right? And they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Neither silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. The day of the Lord doesn't sound like much fun at all. But that was the message of Isaiah and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel, and Micah, and Amos, and all of these Old Testament prophets of God. Reminding people where they are going without walking with the Lord. Amos came to the people declaring this. He said, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or as though he went into the house and he leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. It's not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? Probably came to Easter thinking it would be all flowers and sunshine. Sorry. (laughs) I lived in Indonesia for eight and a half years and it was sunny all the time. And I had lost my appreciation of spring. To appreciate the flowers and the warmth and the sunshine, the smell of these, whatever they're called, (laughs) you have to experience the, the snow and the rain and the cold and the darkness, don't you? One of the greatest points, like we talked about last week, points of unbelief of our day, regards the concept of God's wrath upon sin leading to an eternal separation from Him. It is just a truth that speaks uh, that is spoken of in the scriptures. In our pride, in our pride, we no longer need salvation. We don't. We don't need it. God has shrunk, you know, from being a God of immeasurable holiness and greatness to something that we can just put in our pockets and pull out when we want to feel better about ourselves. A genie in a bottle to grant our wishes. Just rub it, and he'll come out and do whatever you want him to do. Right? Like a dancing puppet. A lifeless amulet in our hands. Which means we, we don't and we can't appreciate really what happened on that cross and in that empty tomb. We forget that according to the Bible, there is no saving ourselves at all. We are hopeless creatures. Ephesians 2.1 says you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead in them, Right? Verse 3 says, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Every single one of us was the object of God's wrath with those prophets talked about. And with modern progressive Christianity just cutting the heart out of the gospel, we don't need to listen to God any longer. Because we've sifted and we choose only what we want. The sense of urgency is lost, since sins become only an archaic notion. We think now that people really aren't that bad, 
everyone will come around eventually since they're all kind of basically good. But according to God's word, they are not when juxtaposed next to a holy God. I was I read a quote by Virslav Volf. Isn't that a great name? Virslav Volf. Um came from the uh I don't know, those, one of those countries over there. Anyway, um, Eastern European countries. And um, not sure what I think about the guy. I've met him. I've listened to him speak. I uh, didn't like what he said when I met him. Uh, he's a theologian. But I saw a recent quote from him where he's changed his mind on some things. He's changed his mind on, like he didn't believe in original sin and all this hell stuff. But after he saw his own people being killed off in genocide, he decided there is evil, there is sin, and there is a hell reserved for people. We don't have to go that far to see it, right? All I have to do is look into my own heart, understand that I lie, understand that you know I, 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 I sin every single day. I'm not honest, and that's enough. That breaks one of the Ten Commandments right there. That's enough. And so for those of us that are still regard God's Word as God's Word, it's like meeting our neighbor on the street right now, right? And we're standing there talking, and suddenly his, his house bursts up in flames. And we're like, call a fireman. He's like, why? What's wrong? My house isn't on fire. Because he can't see his own need. He can't see his own need. But unfettered by pride, we can see that the world will always need Jesus. We don't need Jesus any more now than we did 2,000 years ago. We need him now just as much as we did then and we will in the future. Because we're always in the same state. But again, salvation by what and from what? R.C. Sproul, before he passed, explored the notion that, uh, that the term salvation or the word save is used in various ways in the Bible. For instance, when God delivered Paul and Silas from the jail in Philippi by the earthquake, the jailer asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer that's guarding them, right? And Paul responds, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Simple as that. You and your household, he said. So Paul's concept of salvation, as he spoke that to that man, was, I think, eternal in nature, eternal salvation in Christ. You know, but what was in the jailer's mind, right? Because we know that the law said at, the moment, at that moment that if a prisoner escaped and the jailer that was responsible for them didn't catch them and put them back in, that whatever their crime, their, they were to suffer for their crimes, that jailer had to suffer for the, that, that punishment for their for in their place. So, was the jailer looking for eternal salvation, or you know, or was he just looking for a way out? You know, maybe he did after listening to Paul and Silas. I, you can't. I don't think you could be around Paul without him speaking the gospel to you like all the time. So maybe he was just you know asking you know at that moment, how do I get myself out of this predicament? I don't know. But thankfully, no matter his intention, we do know that he and his household household did find salvation in Jesus, as evidenced by the rest of the passage. Thank, thank the Lord for that. But every time the Bible talks about salvation, it's not necessarily referencing what we consider to be the doctrine of salvation. Eternal salvation in Christ, right? R.C. Sproul, in his book, Saved from What?, points this out. He says, the Bible says that women will be saved through childbirth. 1 Timothy 2.15. You ever read that and you're like, what? 
what, what does that mean? Right? Paul also teaches that the Corinthian, in, uh, to the Corinthians that the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, the believing wife, and, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the believing husband. 1 Corinthians 7.14. Well, you're like, what? You scratch your head, you're like, I don't know what that means. So he asked the obvious question, you know, does the New Testament teach that there's three different ways to be saved? One is you find your own personal faith in Christ, and amen, you're in the door. Or two, you marry somebody that has faith in Christ, and you just live vicariously through them, and oh, you get saved through them. Or three, if you're a woman, you have a kid. You don't even have to get married, just have a kid, you're in the door, right? So us guys, we're, we're you know, we're out of luck. You know, we have two options, and women have three. Obviously, we know that that's not what the Bible is, teaches. It doesn't. It teaches the first one only, having personal faith in Christ. The Bible uses the term salvation in many ways. Not every time when the word is used does it refer to reconciliation with God. The common thread that is found in the many uses is that at the root of it, salvation means rescue or deliverance from some sort of calamity or tragedy or catastrophe or whatever it is. And so the term salvation is used in several different tenses and senses in the scriptures. But when we speak of the doctrine of salvation, we speak to a specific salvation from God's wrath on the day of the Lord. The problem right now, though, is that people don't see the great catastrophe before them at all. The very reason for which we celebrate this day, the death and the resurrection of Christ, each year, our, our sort of spiritual death, our sinful state, the separation that has occurred between us and our Creator. Remember, we are not sinners because we sin. I didn't become a sinner the day that I had a wrong thought or I stole a candy bar from the store when I was 10 years old. That's not when I became a sinner. I was born into it. So we are not sinners because we sin. We, rather, we sin because we are sinners. My deceitful, lying heart is as a result of my sinful nature in, in me. I'm hopeless. And I need, I need salvation from outside of myself. And what we find right now, I think, is that people are too used to it. They are too used to being sick and angry and tired and degrading. We really are. As Jesus said, they don't recognize the peace that is offered to them in Him, in His coming. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, we're like ignorant children who are, want to go on making mud pies in the slums because we can't imagine what it means to have a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily satisfied. And sin stands in the way of a relationship with our Creator. It's not just a wall that God has to climb over. Sin actually demands a payment. I know it sounds weird, but sin must be rendered inert by being washed away by death and by blood. Something had to die in my place for me to be saved. That's why Christ had to shed blood. Literally shed blood. Physically shed blood. 
Because the only thing which will pay the price for our sin is that perfect spotless sacrifice, which he was. He was the only sinless human being in history. So we find out that we only have the sunshine of Easter due to the darkness of the crucifixion three days earlier. And it's not just a metaphorical darkness. Just like Jesus was not just a metaphorical person. He was a real person. The Gospels record, three of them at least, record that there was a darkness from noon to about three in the afternoon that day during that, that whole episode. When, you know, and even some of those non-Christian historians confirm that. This stuff happened. It really happened. Oswald Chambers said it well. He said, the cross of Christ is the revealed truth of God's judgment on sin. He said, never associate the idea of martyrdom with the cross of Christ. Like Jesus wasn't just somebody that got drug away and hurt. It was the supreme triumph of God. It shook the very foundations of hell. There's nothing in time or eternity more absolutely certain and irrefutable than what what, what Jesus Christ accomplished on that cross. He made it possible for the entire human race to be brought back in to right relationship, a right standing and right relationship with God. He made redemption the foundation of human life. That is, he made a way for every single person on this earth that would have it to again have fellowship with their Creator. The cross wasn't something which happened to Jesus. He wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time and got caught up in a, you know, in a riot or something like that. That's not what happened. He came there for it. He, he was going into that city. When he crested that hill and looked down at Jerusalem, he knew what was going to happen to himself. He came there to die. The cross was his purpose, his absolute center purpose in coming. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelations chapter 13, verse 8. This had to happen. So the incarnation, the bodily appearing of Christ in the world, would have no meaning without the cross. He wouldn't have come without it. The purpose of the incarnation was redemption, that blood had to be spelt, that God came in the flesh to take away sin, not to accomplish something for himself. The cross is the central uh, event in time and all of eternity and the answer to all the problems of both. Everything you see out there right now, the things that plague us all, that we're so sick of, tired of hearing on the news, is solved by the cross if people would humble themselves before God in it. Amen. The cross is God exhibiting his nature, his love nature. He wants to sacrifice himself for us. It's the gate through which any and every individual can enter into oneness with God once more. The heart of salvation is the cross of Christ. The reason salvation is so easily obtained by us, in other words, all you got to do is say, Jesus, I want it, is that it cost God so much. That's worth a second, right? The, the reason salvation is so easily obtained is that it cost God so much. The cross was the place where God and sinful man merged in this tremendous collision. 
and where the way of life was opened once more. But all that cost, all that pain of that collision was absorbed by the very heart of God for you and me. What we don't remember is that we are saved by God from God. We are saved by God from God. Not just from our sin, not just from death. We are saved by God from God. R.C. Sproul points out that our shock in the idea that we're saved from God reveals two crucial shortcomings in our, in, our, in our understanding. He says we fail to understand who God is and we fail to understand who we are. That our view of God is way too low and our view of ourselves is way too high. And this was Isaiah's painful discovery when he got a glimpse of the unveiled holiness of God. Uh, you know, in that encounter, Isaiah understood for the very first time in his life what, who God was, and in, in the same breath, he, understand who he, was, he understood who he was by seeing that, right? And, and at that moment, he cursed himself. He said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. But we think pretty highly of ourselves these days. The truth is that our culture is ultra, ultra narcissistic. We do really badly in things, but we think we're still great. There are studies where people do really badly on these tests, but they, you ask them, how do you think you did? Oh, I did wonderful. They don't realize they suck. <laughs> they don't. And you say, I said it in church, by the way. We have an exaggerated self-image while our lives are really a train wreck. Dave said that at men's breakfast this, this weekend, or this week. By the way, guys, if you're not getting the text for men's breakfast, men's breakfast every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Anyway, but Dave said that. You know, our lives are a train wreck. It's not really working. It, you may look good on the outside. You guys may have dressed up for church today, but, but don't you always feel like a train wreck a little bit? In your private moments? See, we avoid the quiet moments. We, we fill them with noise and activity in order not to be confronted with the reality of our hearts. But we must see the darkness to be able to see the light clearly. We cannot ever be afraid to look into those quiet moments of self where God is revealing our real need. Because conviction brings freedom. Real freedom. Not false freedom. We're made in the image of God, but that image has been tarnished. And to see yourself in the reality of your sinful need before a holy God is not to have a bad self-image. It's not like, you know, just flogging yourself. It's exactly the exact opposite. It's the best of self-images, because only in Christ do we, 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 does anyone find out who they really are. It's only in Christ that we become whole, that we find our intrinsic value, our real value. Because God loved us enough to come do this for us. For the unbeliever, the day of the Lord is a day of darkness with no light in it. That's a sad thing. But for the Christian, the day of the Lord is a day of light with no darkness in it. That's a wonderful thing that everybody is offered. 
You know, we've heard from Zephaniah and Amos about the day of the Lord. Now, let's hear from the other side, the bright side, from Isaiah, as, as he prophecies well before the cross ever happened, right? Back in Isaiah 55, concerning the future Messiah and what it'll look like and all those kinds of things. And I want you to hear this, the, the grace and the mercy and the freedom and all that stuff that is in this. And it's a little lengthy, but just, just listen to it. Let it soak in. It says, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples and a ruler and a commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not. And nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for He has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and He will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. Second chance month, right? He will freely pardon. Listen to that. Verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. God is high. He's up there. His thoughts are not our our thoughts. Declares the Lord. Verse 9, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If you're sitting here thinking, this dreadlocked pastor is an idiot preaching about these things, I want you to... Consider that maybe you don't know all that you know. Verse 10, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy, and you will be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Didn't know they had hands, but that's going to happen. Instead of the thorn bush uh, will grow the juniper, and instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be the, the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Amen. Jesus is that word that goes out and does not return empty. John refers to him as the Word of God, the, the living Word. Salvation's free for the taking right now while it still can be found in him. Today is the day. He has and he will accomplish what he has set forth to do. Think again, one more last time, and then we'll end, about that crucified man next to Jesus. Why him? Why a second chance for him? Right? He didn't do anything good. His crimes got him to that cross. He had victims. He didn't have to pay restitution. You know, he didn't have to climb down from his cross and go apologize to people. I'm sure that there are people that are upset that he had that second chance because he hurt people. There were two of them hanging there side by side next to Jesus that day, if you remember. And it says this, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He's mocking him, right? 
But the other criminal rebuked him. He says, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, nodding over to Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that's when Jesus said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. One man, prideful, defiant till the end. The other, with a repentant heart, a humbled spirit, he owned his sin and he recognized his God for who he was. These two men are a visual image of the final day of the Lord. For the prideful, unrepentant one, it's, it is darkness. For the, uh, for the broken, repentant one, it is light. And it all rests on our acknowledgement of personal sin before a holy God right now. That we are saved by Christ, from Christ. Because He alone is holy and worthy of praise. And it's only because of the cross that we have an empty tomb. And it's only because of that empty tomb that we can have eternal life and peace. I hope I did the story justice. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you that you love us. So much so that you made this happen. We thank you that you call us into relationship with yourself and that you provide everything that is necessary for that to happen. We thank you that you, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we ask that if our pride is standing in the way of our hearing your voice this morning, that you would crush that pride and humble us before you so that we can find freedom and find peace once more in you. And that we can start to become part, part of the solution instead of part of the problem in this world. Christ name we pray. Amen. So today we celebrate Jesus, you know, in the upper room with his disciples just before this all happened, the crucifixion happened. He, he prophetically shared this meal with his disciples and, you know, he's, he's communicating to them, but he's also leaving something for us to practice together. So if you are a believer today, if you've put your faith in Jesus, we invite you to participate in the Lord's table this morning. If you're not, if you haven't walked over that, that threshold yet, I, I would love to talk to you about it, but... We ask that you don't participate in this. This is reserved for believers. And not to be exclusive of you, and nobody's watching who's going up and, or not. It's, it's not like that. Um, but from now until the end of the service, we ask that you can come up and you can take one of the, the, these um, little cups. And in the bottom is, we're doing this because of COVID, and in the bottom there's a little bread thing, so you peel this off. And then in the top there's the wine part. Um, but uh, this, this passage is found, just for your knowledge, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
This event is so important that we are to practice this all the time to keep the cross at the center of our thinking. And I think in this day and age, that's extremely important. So let me pray. And feel free from now on, uh, Katie's going to play some background music for a little while. And then even after she's done, you can come up, if, even if somebody's up here talking. So, Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for this table. We thank you for what it means. And we thank you for the remembrance of it. I can't imagine what it would be like to stand there knowing that you're going to die one of the most accrued, you know, just excruciating deaths. And that's where we get that word from, from the cross, excruciating. Just so horrible. But you did it. You chose to do it for us. And we thank you for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.